Welcome back, everybody, to the A World of Difference podcast. We are in a series called Helping in Hard Times, and this is episode two. My next guest is someone who is also very near and dear to me, and that is my big brother, Dr. Christopher Adams. He is an amazing big brother to start off with, (laughs) but um, he's also many other things to a lot of people. And so I wanted to make sure you guys got the treat of being able to hear about his heart and what he's involved with. He is an academic, a musician, a community organizer, an advocate, and just a really great big brother and friend to so many. Um, He is an adjunct professor for the last 12 years at New Mexico State University, and he also is a high school teacher at Las Montañas Charter High School in Las Cruces, New Mexico. He is a, has a PhD in curriculum and instruction. He is fluent in Spanish and English. He Gosh, what else? He he currently is um, with a diversity task force in um, NMSU College of Education. He is also, of course, a singer and songwriter and guitar player of the band C.M. Adams and the Revelators because, you know, that's really common to be an academic and a musician in a band. But not only that, he also holds a New Mexico Music Award um, from 2018 for his song that he wrote and performed with his band. Um, He got Best Americana Song for the song Make My Stand. Um, He was also, they were nominated for um, also Album of the Year as well. And the same year, he is a former regional coordinator for Enlace, where he worked for 10 years, and he'll definitely talk about that in this podcast, um, so you'll get to hear more about that work. And he he's just all around a great guy. Um, I encourage you to check out his album, The Source, which was nominated for Album of the Year, and especially the song Make My Stand. He is both brain and heart, and... Um, just uses his hands to help others and his feet to go places where people often don't want to go to help a lot of people. So you are in for a very special treat today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Christopher Adams. Welcome to the show, Chris, my brother, Dr. Christopher Adams. Good to have you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, um, this is our series where we're talking about how we can help others. And so I definitely wanted to have you on the show today both as an academic, but also um, as someone who is a teacher as well. And and so there's just going to be a lot to talk about. But why don't you just um, introduce yourself to us, let us know kind of who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, as Lori said, my name is uh, Christopher Adams. Um, I do have the PhD um, title, but I don't get hung up on titles. <laughs> but professionally, that's it's a nice thing to I earned it, you know. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but if, but I'm a teacher, and professionally, um, a high school teacher. After um, been in education uh, over 20 years, started teaching high school in 1999 as a Spanish teacher, and um, so here I'm still a teacher. Um, I did uh, taught in academia for few years. Uh, I worked at a university. Um, said I, uh, I, taught, I taught four years and then I went to work at the university and 
I said one day I'd go back and uh, the door was opened last January uh, 2019. So I'm just starting my this fall term. Um, I'm a husband, son and brother. Um, those are the most dear and personal roles, I think. Uh, and I've been a musician since I guess I started playing at eight years old. Um, somewhat professional, I guess. Um, currently, I'm also teaching guitar lessons. Gigging is not possible at this yeah. point. <laughs> uh, but it's helped me to get better as a player. But um, yeah, so we can talk more yeah. about that. That side of teaching is a whole don't. different side of teaching, teaching music, mm -hmm. which is great. Well, I'm so glad yeah. to have you on the show today because I feel like people can learn a lot both from um, what you've learned as an academic and how that, um, and you're not just an academic, but you're a practitioner as well and the things that you've learned mm. and you've helped a lot of people, um, both teachers and students. And it's back to school season. And it's a really weird back to school season because people aren't actually mm -hmm. physically going back to schools in a lot of cases. I know my kids are going to be online for the entire fall. So I do not consider myself a teacher and yet I'm having to be one, a mm. teacher, principal and yeah. all those things at the same time. So I know a lot of parents, teachers, students are kind of struggling right now. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I wanted to start kind of at the beginning, which is um, about mm. your growing up experience. Obviously I was around for a lot of it, <laughs> but we all experienced yeah. growing up even in the same family and in the same country in different ways. So right. um, I don't know. What was it like to grow up as Chris Adams? Um, well, there's phases uh, that, uh, uh, that I remember my childhood. The first phase really being before we moved to Venezuela. Um, that was a very innocent time, I guess. Um, in a lot of ways, very, you know, we lived in a very rural, poor part of the U.S. of Western Kentucky. Um, our dad was a, a small rural church pastor. Uh, both of our parents were going to school much during that time. Um, so there was a lot of uh, single parenting going on, I guess if you could say. Dad was gone for um, almost during the week for a good chunk of that, the last year or two anyway. Um, but it was a happy time. I mean, um, I guess the only there were couple of traumatic experiences uh, when your pillow caught on fire, I guess, um, in the house filled with smoke when I broke my arm. Um, yeah, and I had a lot of good memories from that place. I think mom and dad would say the same. Um, uh, the, the real d difficult part came when we did move. Um, it was exciting, though, to be able to go to a different country to become bilingual, the idea of it. Um, it, you know, as with any move to a new place, it comes with its adjustments. And this came with learning to speak the language and a whole new culture, which, you know, it all did work out for the greater benefit in my life. And now I can't imagine having not experienced yeah. that. I definitely would not have had the opportunities that I have now. I know that. Um, but, you know, 
new, new school and actually me for me it was changing during middle school yeah. right and so middle school and kids can be really cruel yeah <laughs> um so yeah um but those those two were it's just you know as far as adolescence and childhood those are um very significant um uh, but I have happy memories of growing up, uh, missing grandparents, I guess, and relatives. Um, I know for uh, that, that played a huge role as why I chose to go back, go to college close to where my family was. I didn't know anywhere else in the U.S., to be honest, and I didn't want to go alone, you know. Um, yeah. So that was a challenge, but at least I was near somebody I you know, was yeah, because we were all still in Venezuela, and you were coming to the U.S. alone, um, and so you chose to be around our relatives. Which, that they, yeah. they were people you knew, and, <laughs> right? In many ways, it was felt like coming to a foreign country, even though I spoke the language, had some cultural capital. There was just, a, you know, a feeling of being an immigrant. Yeah. You know, even though I passed in a lot of ways of not being different. Yeah. At least on the outside in the language that I spoke culturally was very uh, um, difficult at times yeah that was a real struggle and being the firstborn in our family you really had to carry mm -hmm. a huge weight and I see that with a lot of families who um, are expats raising kids in another country besides their passport country mm -hmm. or the, a country where they're not citizens right. of that firstborn mm -hmm. that comes that goes back to the passport country it's really hard um, to be the first. And so mm -hmm. you definitely had to bear the brunt of that in the, the third culture kid world all alone. Um, so talk right. about like also just the experience of like, you know, high school, you were an international school and you had friends from, you know, all over the world. What was that experience like? And maybe what are some lessons you had um, from that time? Well, um, as I understand the class, I, uh, I, I was joined into had been together since early elementary and they were really tight. So it was somewhat difficult to fit in. I don't think I fully fit, really felt like I would belong until my senior year. Um, of course, um, I did my eighth grade, ninth grade and 10th grade with them. And then I was, we were here in the States for my 11th. Um, but I didn't really feel like, and then also at the same time, I began to really feel like I was Venezuelan that last yeah. year. Um, I had anticipated all the years prior, you know, moving back to the States and, you know, that American dream that they sell you living out of the States was, you know, part yeah. of it. But um, I didn't want to leave when it came down to it. Yeah. Um, and we can get into that <laughs> reasons later. But um, I just felt like there were people there that I didn't want to leave. And then one of those was my future wife. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's so hard because all those years, um, I mean, my perspective on it, and it may have been different for you was we had this international school that we went to where people pretty well right. off and pretty, you know, educated and we're from all uh -huh. these countries. And that was very diverse and exciting, it, but it wasn't diverse economically. It was kind of all, one That's side, true. which you know, there's been a lot. Yeah. In the, there have been some articles written about that recently as we're talking about, um, you know, 
privilege and, you know, some of the racial issues going on. I've seen some things that have mm-hmm. been written about growing up in international schools overseas right. um, where there wasn't mm-hmm. economic diversity and just the privilege that comes along with that as well. So that's a whole other topic. But I do think for, for you and I, you know, we grew up in international school, but we also had parents who were working um, to make a difference in the lives of many who were not as well off mm-hmm. in Venezuela in our city. Right. So we were exposed to kind of two really different worlds. And yeah, Contrast. and so, you know, talk about that experience of these, you know, our church yeah. world, the world of like where our parents were, where mom was starting a clinic and, yeah. you know, all these things. Talk about sure. that. Yeah, um, that, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I guess when it talked, you know, in thinking about that, I don't think, for me, my friends never made me feel like I wasn't, I, I was less than in any way, though they were significantly higher up the, the chain on the socioeconomic yeah. scale. Um, I didn't feel that ostracization yeah. or that classism, uh-huh. if you will. Um, um, there was a significant thing when it comes came to racism, you know, uh, little things you know, um, that you pick up here and there, um, you know, but, you know, like we had 80 nations yeah. present. Um, yeah. And so, but it's like, you know, so there was that sort of acceptance, if you will. Um, you know, the, the many, I can't, I don't know if that means 80 languages necessarily. Um, I know Spanish wasn't allowed to be used in class. <laughs> yeah. Um, Though we do it, of course, teacher, teacher, teachers always thought you were talking about <laughs> them, right? Um, but when it, when I think about what making a difference meant to me, and of course, you know, you don't think about those in, intentionally, I guess, as a as a teenager, because you're so self-absorbed. Yeah. Um, and I do recall the youth group I belong to, uh, which was part of the English church there. Um, we went and did some community service things. Um, um, so there was that instilled. We had two great teachers who, who were the leaders of that. And they, they made sure that we got exposed to those who were less privileged. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, as far as the models that we had was, of course, our parents, yeah. you know, um, growing up, having both of them growing up from poverty um, and, you know, Eventually, we, you know, we reached middle class, maybe um, in some respects. Um, so just watch it. I mean, I didn't observe at the time, but looking back, um, the, what there were so many valuable lessons and just the, the huge accomplishments that, that they were able to pull off um, countrywide, um, uh, just... And then the, the just the fearlessness, I guess, of just going somewhere and being, you know, na- just like navigating something brand new like that, like the way yeah. they did, um, driving us in pretty uh, sketchy places, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, at the time when and time period when you know Anglo European, uh, you, you know, Americans were. Uh, kidnapped, yeah. you know, frequently. Um, it's just miraculous that we that didn't happen to yeah. us. Um, but I just, I, I think 
those things come to my mind when I think about making a difference. Um, the the conscious effort to, you know, give and 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 not just like food and whatnot, but provides you know healthcare, um, well-being, treating the the physical needs first, and then the spiritual. Yeah. Not tie, not tying those two together, yeah. you know. I know, I've heard of some that do, right. you know. No, I I agree. I I experienced some of those same thoughts that you had the way you're describing it growing mm -hmm. up, just with parents who who taught us um, that life wasn't just to be lived for ourselves. That we're supposed to help others, and and in helping others, right. it's a, I mean, it often is a risk to you and your family, and they. They definitely, right. we were in a situation in Venezuela where it was not, I mean, it's certainly not like it is now. It was, you know, back in the 80s and early 90s, it was certainly different. Using the term American Christianity, uh -huh. you know, um, I, 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 I was talking about this with another group of men that I recently started meeting with, um, how that was very different than the practices that we saw yeah, there. Yeah, I agree. Um, First of all, I mean, you know, the Baptist churches did here don't dance. They do where we went to church, yeah. you know. Um, there were certain things you did. I mean, they just were not culturally accepted here. Yeah. Um, but the, the whole notion of, you know, going to be a missionary and, you know, uh, winning souls, right, and saving lives, I think, you know, that was our intention going into that, you know, from what I recall as we were preparing, you know, we were very young, but I remember the preparations that mom and dad went through and the, the grilling they went yeah. through, right? But I look back on that, really, it was we who were saved. Yeah. Um, and not only from some, but from like, you know, very bubble-like places, that we grew up in, um, we were exposed to so much diversity and um, just differences that we would not have had to get exposed to. Um, so yeah, I feel like we were the ones that were saved. Yeah, I, I agree. It's just such a great way to grow up. Um, even the mm. struggle, I'm just grateful for because struggle, mm. you know, can make you better if you allow it. I feel like oh, that's yeah. a story for, for me, for you, for our family. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to ask this question. So you're definitely a person who wants to make a difference. And it's certainly not a given that when you have parents that are like ours, that you have, that you, the children will grow up wanting to also be the kind of people that want to help others and make a difference. But just for you personally, was yeah. there a particular time that you can think of when you were younger at any point, or maybe it was more of a process where you just knew you also wanted <laughs> to make a difference? Yeah, I I got a I it did I did not want to be in the helping professions uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> or going. I mean, I mean, if you can, I mean, even with music, I didn't know that that could be a helping profession. Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely see that now. Um, I just know I, I, I that's the one thing that I knew that I wanted to do. At a point in my life, I needed a job, and that was something I was you know, okay. I'll do this for a while. Um, but I'm, I fell in love with it right away. Um, yeah. And to see, and I was late, my late 30s, um, see what, how all that I had lived.
could make sense and could be of some benefit to somebody, yeah. you know, because coming back to the States and not having or being able to use that cultural capital that was from Venezuela and Latin America and the linguistic capital not being useful. Now here in New Mexico, it was useful um, and valued, validated, yeah. you know, and I didn't feel that move when I moved back to Kentucky, yeah. you know, and it's not that it was intentional on the parts of those people that I, you know, was family with. It's just, that's who yeah. they were, you know, they didn't know any yeah. different, you know, and, you know, some, many of those people from other countries and whatnot are suspect, yeah. you know, as, um, somebody different, you know, um, but when I'm finally, I mean, teaching, you know, I saw my, the big possibilities and when I really knew and figured this is a destiny, this is going to happen, uh, was when I started taking graduate courses. Mind you, I only had a, my degree was not in teaching. I didn't have a certificate. I, I got hired on a waiver. So I had to go get courses in education to get my certificate, which I eventually got you know, it was, you know, basically the master's degree. Right. Yeah. And so my first class was, um, a multicultural education class, um, with Dr. Chavez Chavez, who would become my chair on my dissertation and my mentor, you know, um, and one of the most trusted friends I've ever known. Yeah. Um, and that course showed me stories, um, and narratives of people who grown up like I did with two, two different, two cultures, two languages, and that fit the feeling of like I, I had experience of not being validated, not and not being able to use that cultural capital, you know, which language is so tied to culture to me to, yeah. you know, and so not being able to speak that was like, you know, I don't know, a part of you was you were losing all the time. And, you know, so I, that class, how about halfway through my, that first class in my master's, I realized I'm going to have to get a doctorate in this because it's a way to figure me out. I saw that, but I just, there was so much to um, not just learn academic sense. Okay. I didn't go in it just for the curiosity academically. To me, it was, per, it was personal. Yeah. Um, and I saw the impacts of education. It taught, you know, Tom exposed to me the inequalities of education and the, the exclusion of students of color and the underprivileging basically intrinsic in the system. So that's when I saw, okay, I have some, I have a mission now. Yeah. You know? Describe that. Describe <laughs> what you're doing as an educator, as an academic, as a teacher. Well, I'm just trying to be human and help trying to help other people be more human. And part of that is the getting your hands dirty with the, the with the the realities that our kids come in with every day. Um, it's not just robotically trying to dispense content. You know, uh, one of my good um, he says, I love his quote. He's like, I teach kids not content mm, you know? that's good. and 
I don't know any teacher worth their salt or that would really that excels in this profession without that mindset. Yeah. You know, without that love for the kids and mm. you know, there's easier ways to make money. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> in the in Los Angeles work at the at the class the class at this school that I would visit at once a month or so, they had done for the past several years lots of studies on the on mental health and in mental health with youth. Um, and so they taught me a lot about mental health early on um, um, and kind of put things on my radar and helped me start getting help for myself, actually. So kids, like I said, kids teach us more yeah. than we teach them. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so as we started learning and they were, ex we were looking at, you know, the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experiences study um, that was done 20 years ago, actually. Um, but basically it helps, it was showing how trauma affects the long-term health impacts of, you know, childhood trauma, you know, the impacts on the brain development as well as long-term uh, health in, you know, diabetes, heart issues, you know, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things in that. Um, so that's where it kind of started um, for me. Um, at the time, of course, I, you know, had been a few years already into my own recovery, uh, 12-step work. Um, so this kind of fit in with that. Yeah. Um, and just, I think it's been so stigmatized, mental health and acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. Kids were just saying, this you know it's not a joke that was their motto mental health is not yeah. a joke because you know in our community um there had been a, quite a few suicides yeah. um over in those early years and so that kind of got them on to doing this work um and they spent a whole year um that first year and they they've been doing the same work and doing just keep the research they did ever since um it's not all they do, but that's been a huge part of their work in the last four or five years. It was convincing me and okay, we need to learn how to deal with trauma um, and help, you know, not just students, but I mean, and there was um, one of the studies that I'd come across, 90% identified as high stress level in their jobs. And this is before COVID, of wow. course. So, and as well, that same number was that this for those um, same teachers that didn't do anything to help with, uh, or deal with it, you know, 93% weren't dealing with it. Um, I know that you've also, um, not only are you teaching in a high school right now, just as a way to kind of have your hands into the mm -hmm. things that you've learned and put those into practice, but um, you also, was it for about 10 years that you worked with Enlace? Yeah. You want to talk about that? Sure. Um, because in those early days of teaching, the first couple of years, I just, I don't know, you know, it, it, I don't know if it happens to other people, but I just got a glimpse that I was part of an organization like that going around to different schools. And, you know, at the time I didn't, you know, I don't know what that meant, you know, but that's eventually what I ended up doing. Um, and the nonprofit, unless it's a nonprofit organization, um, 
educational program that stands for Engaging Latinos in Communities for Education. And, you know, it we started the, the this Hispanic student um, dropout study in 1999 that my mentor, Dr. Chavez was part of that study. Um, and so it's basically to help fill the gap, opportunity for students, college preparation, help students have you you know have information and exposing them to the campus and you know learn how to like you can do this you belong here um, so and I would you know it, we had a yeah, I helped build and develop new classes in different schools and uh, from high school middle school and eventually into elementary so it was an awesome experience and you also had um like you would bring some of them on field trips, is that right? To like yeah. Los Angeles, yeah. Yeah, well, or we because we our offices were at the university here at New Mexico State University, and eventually moved to the community college. Um, so you know, we we'd bring every fall and spring we'd bring kids to the campus here, um, which is great and all. But I was like, well, you know, it'd be nice if we could expose them to other colleges. Not that we don't want them here. It's like there's other options outside of um, so let's you know so we started a short trip to UNM and Albuquerque and then our first big excursion was to which we took them to U of A in Tucson and then ASU and Phoenix and so that was the first year we went out of state and then the next California um, we took them to UCLA um, USC and Cal State Northridge um, and Santa, UC Santa Barbara. And then the following year, we got down to San Diego. Um, and so, um, uh, what's the name of that college down there? The, that's, is, that, is that you? That's not USC. It's a UC. I think it's UC Santa Bar San Diego. Oh, San Diego? Uh huh. Yeah, okay. it's beautiful, right on the ocean. Yeah, it is. It's an awesome campus. Yeah. And then we drove up to LA after that day. Um, and saw this I mentioned earlier, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, you know, many of our students had never left here. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, we had a few that um, colleges at, right out of high school. Most of them, because our state has the lottery scholarship. Okay. So that pays for your your tuition, um, you know, from freshman on for for three and a half years. They don't pay the it doesn't pay the first semester. Many students stay uh, stay in state for that reason. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. And we would have gone this year, but COVID happened. I was going, getting ready to go to Dallas and Austin and see colleges there, but that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, a lot of plans that had to. Yeah, change, especially with schools. Well, as we're on that topic, um, let's talk about that. So what are some things that you would like for teachers that might be listening or students or parents of students to know um, from your um, expertise about going into this fall semester and the way it's going to look? What are some important things for people to know? Well, I'm as confused, I think, as most other families and parents are. I, I think teachers are not sure yet what to expect. Um, I, 
you know, we're, we're starting on Monday and, you know, all I know is we're going online and, and that's, you know, it was really crazy in the springtime and I've, you know, it just, I guess just be patient with us and be patient with yourselves and be patient with your kids. Yeah. You know, um, we're all, this is a new experience for most of us. Um, and we will get through it. Um, I know that, you know, teachers are the, all the ones I've ever known are really resilient and creative and, uh, hardworking and yeah. trust that professionalism, mm-hmm. you know, um, but also trust that their concerns about going back physically, you know, yeah. the, you know, many of, you know, have great fears of take, bringing it to their family and exposing their families as not just themselves. Yeah. And, and we worry about our kids doing the same. Yeah. So, um, I don't think any teacher I've talked to is comfortable going back physically. Our state, our state is one of the states that's not going to do it. Yeah, um, starting out, we yeah. we're going to ch- look. I think our governor is going to look at it month by month until we can get the numbers and flatten the curve. Yeah, but you we've been some, going up. You have some um, stuff that you've learned um, about, like trauma and teaching. Yeah. Yeah, why don't you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, and so that class did a study of their their school, our school, um, and kind of questions just to figure out how many, what the, were the impacts of trauma. And it didn't surprise us um, that 75% of our student body had some been impacted by some form of childhood trauma, multiple was the real reality. It wasn't just one. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, that kind of let it, we at least now had the study to show what we already kind of knew. Right. Okay. And so, so we've built, that has informed um, a classroom that they got designated to be like the um, student drop-in center for when they're having crises. And so a lot of counseling goes on there. Um, but also our school has begun to implement um, classes that replace the old um, uh, advisory period, which really didn't, students, we didn't do anything. It was like 30 minutes of playing on your phones, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, with, with more conscious effort to deal with the social-emotional learning um, and if you're not aware of that, it comes from, it's look up Cassell's social emotional learning company. And those focus on self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. Um, and I find that's not just for kids, okay? Yeah. Um, and so, at, you know, the trauma-based teaching is, you know, utilizes that and tries to, um, couch our activities to help develop those things. Um, and, you know, basically it teaches the whole child, you know, uh, it's not just um, dispensing information, right? It, it helps to build just connections with kids. Um, you know, a lot of kids that I teach have low self-esteem, so it helps to build that. Um, um, helping kids to know how to regulate emotions 
and notice those deter or disrupt our day, right? Yeah. And so also knowing how to manage conflict or difficult experiences in healthy ways, right? So that's some of the things that social emotional learning helps with. Um, and so that falls in line with, you know, some of the practices that it's kind of in vogue now with, with mindfulness, right? Um, in our, my class, we, I had a friend of mine that would come in once a month and she would do meditation with the kids and lead them through a guided meditation and, you know, just to calm ourselves, you know. Um, but I, we also incorporated other forms of meditation like music, art, um, you know, walking could be forms of meditation. But try to introduce that idea of just being still and getting quiet and to learn how to breathe and calm yourself. Um, so it's not just, you know, theory, it's practice. And at the very least, breathing is the one thing that we can't live without. And it's the simplest thing, but it's the hardest thing just to focus on. It it, is. <laughs> yeah, I love this so much because, you know, it seems to me and I'm kind of new into the U.S. school system because, you know, we've been overseas mm -hmm. for so long and I myself was raised right. overseas and so was my husband. And so mm -hmm. but it seems to me that for the most part in the U.S. public schools, this kind of teaching, this kind of approach is really only for kids who are you know, on an IEP or something like that. But what you're talking mm. about is something that all students should and all teachers um, could benefit right. from. Well, one of the things about successful, you know, um, programs or movements uh, that has been noted is it takes a school-wide approach or in your case, you know, church-wide or institution-wide approach, maybe district-wide. Um, it just, it's hard to isolate, be a small little group to really get off the ground and have without that support, right? Yeah. But one of the things, our, our director, Mr. Martinez, was fully on board um, with that. So that's something that's been huge and critical. And, you know, not a, you know most, most of this is new to all of us in the teaching as teachers. Um, I, you know, recognized immediately the connections with as social emotional learning and and the 12 steps yeah. and the recovery work that I've yeah. done um, and others that I know that do that work as well. Well, like this is the 12 steps. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, so talk about that a little bit, because your music is um, not only mm. songs written by your own introspection and your own experience, mm -hmm. but um, you also have been someone who has shared your music and you guys as a band have played in like homeless shelters and you use it as a way mm -hmm. to, to help the community. Right. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, um, when I decided I was sick and tired of being sick and tired in <laughs> September 20th of 2009, I was pretty convinced that I would, there was no way I could play music again because I uh, attempted several projects. It's like, okay, don't bring that in here when we're playing. Let's, you know, eventually, you know, those things would creep in, which I was struggling with, yeah. right? Um, and so I was like, okay, there's no way I'm going to find guys that don't partake 
you know, and I'm not judging them. It's just, I could, I was trying to quit and it just, you know, I wasn't strong yeah. enough. You know, I just, in my early uh, addicted mind, it's like, okay, I don't know what to yeah. do. Then just say no. And this is not ever going to happen. So I, you know, within a few months of um, starting my recovery, I sold off all whole bunch of gear that I'd collected um, that uh, Raquel, my wife, said, don't sell the Les Paul. Yeah. <laughs> so I kept I kept that one. Yeah. Um, but and during those three and it was about three years that I didn't play. I mean, I had my I had that guitar and maybe once every six months I'd pull it out and then for five minutes and then put it back in the case. I didn't really I didn't play music. Um, and I, I'd been a I think I wrote my first song in my mid 20s but it was that was never the focus lyric writing but there in this period it had to become the focus because that was the only outlet i had just being an artist yeah. only creative outlet so i you know as i was learning of the things i was picking up in my recovery work and reading um you know i had you know I, my brain works i got to write it down if, to really lock it in even more if i write a song about it yeah. Right. <laughs> and and personalize and apply those things to my life. And mm -hmm. so so many of the songs that became our, the, the album you're referring to was written during my recovery work the first year. Um and some second a few consecutive years after that. But yeah, I mean so that's kind of the it basically is kind of a concept album, if you will, from like the beginning to you know, finding freedom at the end. Yeah. And using that part of my story to help others, you know, the last song is testify. Oh, the first song is talks about the devil wouldn't let me go. Mm. Right. The songs let me go. All right. Um, and then the last song is called testify, you know, see what God has done. Yeah. You know, if there's only one reason I'm still alive, it's to testify what God's done in my life, you know, because for all practicing statistically, I should be dead, you know. Yeah, you went through um, quite a bit, and all of us were overseas. Yeah. Mom and Dad were, I guess, in Thailand yeah. at that point, and I was in Indonesia when you were going through a lot of things. And music yeah. saved you. I mean, God saved you, but <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, it has saved me several times. But I, music is so connected to my God experiences. Yeah. It's what I do meet God, yeah. and God knows how to speak to me. And he seems to always speak to me in that way. Now, he's used others definitely, you know, to do that. But that's, a, you know, in ways that words can't express. Yeah. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Um, well, how have you seen your music touch the lives of others, especially like in, in the spaces where you guys yeah. have been, you consider like well, a ministry? We are... You know, we've, we haven't been active since in, in the past yeah. year just for issues, you know, conflict and schedules and whatnot. I'm confident we will. But for a good solid three years, we were playing once a month at the Gospel Rescue. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, similar struggles that I've experienced going on there. And so, you know, I would often tell you, give my testimony as well um, and just connect with those struggles um, that people are experiencing and going through. 
Um, so I just that's the only place I've really seen the impact. If you're saying about like physically seeing it, um, you know, um, I know there's uh, we also played in our local um, celebrate recovery meetings here in town at a couple of churches. We would, you know, which is, you know, all our music was basically birthed in celebrate recovery. Yeah. Um, so that's a way to go back and help them out a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, most most leaders would say. Um, they learn their greatest lessons and hardship. And I think you're definitely mm -hmm. one of those that you've allowed that mm -hmm. hardship to compel you with a passion to want to help others in many areas. And um, yeah, as we're looking at the current situation in the United States and you're kind of living and working on the border and education, what kind of advice would you have to teachers who are teaching kids who are immigrant kids along the lines of some of this trauma mm. that you were talking about? Um, yeah. especially for teachers who've not really experienced living in another culture, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, first is if you don't love kids, then find something else to do, <laughs> right? Number one. Two is um, you got to take care of yourself yeah. in order to take care of other mm -hmm. people. Um, I mean, just look at, you can see a teacher, a brand new teacher first, year and see them for a couple years down the road and the physical changes the aging yeah. right that it takes um so it's a it's it's definitely a, a rigorous stressful you know it's one of that it's it's also i mean i'd say it's up it is up there with the most dangerous professions yeah. in a lot yeah. of ways um and not to mention, and that's not, that's even, ex, that's excluding the whole school shooting thing. Yeah. Right. For sure. I'm not even thinking yeah. about that. I'm just talking about the yeah. workload. Right. Um, then the next thing I would say is learn about your students, where they come from, where conditions do they live in, um, get to know, you know, what they face every day in a reality. You know, you don't, I mean, knowing what they go home yeah. to right, is something that all teachers need to be aware of. Um, of course, we teachers used to go knocking on doors. They don't do that anymore. Uh, so it's a little more difficult, um, but research that. Uh-huh. Um, and then that's just like, you know, this, you know, the conditions. But then there's also the cultural the diversities that our student bodies come with, um, you know, like I said, with that multicultural education class, I mean, that for me was not just about me, but it was about many of the students that were yeah. there that I was teaching, you know, embracing that is crucial to connecting with students and making curriculum relate relevant to them um, and to be able to apply that to their lives. So, you know, get educated on cultural competency and cultural um, responsiveness, right, with teaching. Um, so we have two questions we're asking everybody in this series. And the first one is, what are some resources that you want to point us to that have been helpful to you? Maybe that's a person, mm. maybe it's an article, a book, a movie, um, music, yeah. or all of the above. What are some resources you would point us to? So um, 
and thinking about recommendations or references. Um, uh, I have to think about those who've made a difference in my own thinking um, and played a part in my own transformation um, and learning how to be in a world of differences and be in a way that, that's not only respectful and I don't like to use the word tolerant, but accepting, engaging with that difference. Um, um, as much as I, I'll, I'll get into in a minute, authors I'd recommend, but I first have to credit those folks that I um, have, just friends and colleagues that have been instrumental in mind transformation um, in thinking about learning how to be a, uh, um, a social justice worker um, um, my mentor, Dr. Chavez Chavez here at uh, NMSU, uh, was instrumental in that. Um, a bunch of other teachers, uh, colleagues as well. Um, my students have been instrumental in that. A um, couple of authors I'd like to recommend that are a short list, and there are quite a few, uh, but just a couple would be um, Gordian Saldua's work, um, Borderlands Frontera was the first book I picked up. Um, that really got me on this path. It helped me under, um, helped to me normalize this idea of, of crossing borders and being bicultural and bilingual, that it was okay, that it was to live in the middle, to live in the in-between, to accept both, that you don't have to reject one and, and go and prefer another. Um, work of Bell Hooks, um, Paulo Freire, Noam Chomsky, Roxanne on Dunbar Ortiz, Rodolfo Acuna, um, Chicano history in the U.S., um, Cornell West, Angela Davis, of course, the, doc, the works of Dr. King, uh, Derek Belgor and Alpert, James Cohn, who wrote on Black Theology of Liberation, and then more recently, um, uh, Michelle Alexander's work on the new Jim Crow and her work on racism in the U.S. criminal justice system. Um, more recently, I've been into getting into the work of Ibram Kendi, who offers, in my opinion, some of the most brilliant and poignant discussions and illustrations on race and racism in America. I highly recommend his book, Stamp from the Beginning, that chronicles the complete history of race and racism to present. Um, his other book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is just phenomenal. Um, both of these are essential readings for, in my opinion, anyone rec uh, wanting to make a difference in the times we're living in today. Um, uh, but uh, I would really like to share, um, focus as not next on um, <laughs> that, uh, basically it's a chapter I've been working on in a book I've been working on, who knows when it's gonna be published, but uh, this chapter is talking about learning how to die, um, that looking at ourselves first um, and how to change ourselves before we and try to make change, make differences in our, you know, in our own selves before others. Um, first, the, it starts with a quote by the band Wilco. Uh, it says, "You have to lose. You have to learn how to die if you want to be alive." And then another quote by Alan Redpath. It says, "Before we can pray, Lord, Thy kingdom come. We must be willing to pray, My kingdom go." Right. So, um, I am. I start so I can relate a lot with Jonah. God tells him to do something and Job politely says nope and hightails it in the opposite direction thinking he can run away from God as if that's even possible, right? 
For those who don't know the story, short version, God um, asked Jonah to go pray, uh, to the, preach to the Ninevites, uh, who were a godless people, you might say. Um, Jonah had this, uh, has his own prejudice toward these people, thinks God should punish them, so he says, no, I don't, I'm not willing to do that. And so um, Jonah hops a ship, ship, God creates a, a storm, the ship's about to go down, uh, the ship captains wake Jonah, who's sleeping in the de bottom deck. Jonah sees what's going on, says, okay, I know what, what, what the cause of this is. So he throws himself overboard to save the people on the ship. God causes a great fish to swallow him up. Jonah's in the belly of the whale or fish for three days where he has his come to Jesus moment, realizes the error of his ways. And so God causes the fish to throw him up and he goes on and follows God's direction to um, preach to the Ninevites. So um, Jesus also refers to Jonah. Um, and for me, the story of Jonah is much about as much about confronting our own fear and prejudice towards those who are different from us as it is about obeying God. In Jonah, we see a man who lets his own prejudice get between him and God. Jonah is even willing to face God's wrath and suffer the consequences. He even prefers God to take his own life because of his hatred for those people whom he thought God should punish. Right? So uh, another way to look at Jonah's story is that God was sending Jonah to Nineveh because he wanted to teach him something. Maybe get him out of his comfort zone, right? Maybe help him see others as God sees them. I think this for me is one of the many mysteries of Jesus referencing Jonah as the primary metaphor for transformation. You know, the crowds wanted a sign from Jesus, but he says to them, it's an evil and adulterous generation that wants a sign. He says the only sign he will give them is a the sign of Jonah, right? You know, we have to lose. We have to learn how to die before we can be alive. We have to say, my kingdom go before God's kingdom can come, all right? And we often hear people talk about or praise God for their salvation, right? But it's a much rarer occasion that we hear about how Christ transformed them or resurrected them. Right, or made a difference in their lives. Right. What about anything, um, resources along the lines of helping people understand um, immigrant children and students mm. and, and what's happening in our nation at this point so we, people can be more educated about that? Wow. Um, well, a lot of great resources are on websites of your local or state or national ACLU, uh, your civil rights organizations that are, are in the fight right now as far as that concerned. Um, I mean, I, I frequently um, ran circles with our local ACLU folks, was good friends with a couple of them, um, and they did great work here along the border. Um, or, and still are. Um, so that's one thing that I've also used in curriculum as well, because they're, I mean, they have muscle too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and their stuff is easy to understand. Um, and they have a, you know, a resource page with all the issues 
that you can easily educate yourself with. Um, That's good. Yeah. So the other question we're asking everybody in the series, because when it comes to people who like to make a difference in the world and are wanting to help others, um, sometimes we can do so much that we don't take care of ourselves. And so I know you talked about that with teachers. Make sure you take care of yourself so you can help others. So the question is, what do you like to do on your day off? Or how do you get rest? Mm -hmm. How do you like to rest? <laughs> um, I, before I answer this question, I, I want to add to, to for the last question okay. that there are a lot of smaller um, social justice organizations that may not be nationwide okay. that are also just look up your local, you know, um, they have different themes. I mean, um, human rights groups, um, just whatever you just look up human rights groups in your community. And those are the folks that are on the ground, boots on the ground, just like nurses and doctors are in the hospital. Yeah. They're the they're the ones that I would go to. And I would just whenever they have meetings or sessions, just attend those and just listen. Yeah. Right. Go and listen. Um, you know, it's one thing to read about it, but it's one thing to get to know. Those people who live in the shadows. Yeah. OK. Hearing from actual um, people. And right. Because it's not what we all about what we see on TV. Mm -hmm. um, that reality is just so yeah, yeah, we're, far from reality. <laughs> yeah, we're fed so, a lot in the media these days, even on you know our phones yeah. and and you know news gets yeah. tailor made to different echo chambers. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I yeah, love and after all, kids are still in cages. Yeah, today you know yep. that has dropped from our radar since COVID. Yeah, um, but it's still you know, traumatic to say the least. Yeah. And right under our noses, you know, human rights abuses are happening. Yeah. Um, you know, on our watch. Yeah. And close to where you live and are helping people. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, along those so, lines, I'd love to hear about yeah. how you get some rest. Because <laughs> you're doing Yeah. So the last question, could you repeat it again, please? Yeah. Like when you have a day off um, or you have a mm -hmm. chance to rest, how do you rest? What's, what does that look like for you? Well, um, usually music yeah. is my go-to thing. I'll come over here and play a couple hours. Um, I don't, I mean, that's, that's the way I decompress and, you know, get out of my head, you know, um, time stands still when I do that. So it's a form of meditation, like I said yeah. earlier. Um, but I think, you know, my other, my, my first go-to is just hanging out with my wife, you know, <laughs> watching TV together, um, just hanging out with her. Um, she helps me get, keeps me grounded. And she's also was a former teacher um, and just really resourceful um, as well. But um, I'll, whenever I have, you know, a day off, I usually go try to hang out with mom and dad, but try to do that once a week. Um, those are things I have to do. Um, I'm pretty routine. I'm pretty structured. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't. We're pretty boring, I guess, <laughs> if you just look at it. But it works no, for me. Great. Um, I mean, I love that you I do think music and relationships. My, those are both very good. My life. <laughs> was really complicated for a long yeah. time. And I think the simplistic 
those things are just what matters. Yeah. You know, everything else can just, you know, you know, just focus on what matters, you know, soul work, if you will, yeah. what feeds your soul. Um, I find myself doing that more and more these days. That's good. Yeah. You spent some time in New York City, which about as busy as you could possibly be. And then mm. I remember when you, um, yeah. after you were studying at Columbia under your doctorate early on, and then when you got back to New Mexico, just such a different pace and started to get healthier in, in that way, just the pace, the pace can be really tough. So Yeah, and it, it did take a while, yeah. even when I moved back yeah. here. Um, but that was adjusting post-divorce Um working through that PTSD, yeah, exactly. um, which I didn't know what it was at the time. Yeah. Right. But it is a trauma. So it's a grief. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't work through those, right, they will destroy you. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the work that you do. I'm proud that you have not only worked on yourself um, and worked through your, um, you know, difficulties in life and all that, but also that you're helping other people work through theirs in some really hands-on ways. Um, even yeah. learning how to help others help others as well. So thank you. Yeah. For and just from my step work, that's the 13th step is taking that message to other people. Every yeah. time I'm, I get a chance to share that with somebody, it helps me, you know, so thank you for giving me the opportunity of course. Um, to share a little bit of what I know. I hope it was, useful and beneficial <laughs> it was you're an inspiration keep up the good work thank you. you you too love you proud of you you too thank you bye bye-bye i want to say a very special thank you to my big brother dr christopher adams and his just everything that he does and all that who he is and the way he just pours himself into all kinds of areas in his community and and in life and those of us who get to be family with him it's it's just a huge blessing and i know that those who have been his students and colleagues and professors and you know so many people have been blessed by his life so i just i'm so grateful he agreed to be on on this show on this second episode of the make a world of difference podcast i know that you've been inspired to make a difference in new ways because of things that he shared um and you know hopefully these things that he shared will kind of spur some new conversations that you are having with your own family your own spouses and kids and parents and siblings and friends co-workers neighbors people in your communities of faith um, these kind of conversations are just are just really important right now how can we make a difference with our lives with the time we have left you know if there's anything that COVID has taught us it's that life is really short and uh, my husband had a friend who living in London and, and you just saw her a couple years ago and she put on Facebook day three she had COVID and was just not feeling well and on day five she was she had already passed away she didn't even make it to the hospital it, it was just a real wake-up call for us that Wow, we would we just want to live each day um, knowing that we are making a difference in the lives of others we don't know how much time we have left and so for me I just um, this is great that I get to interview my family members I can't see them right now I haven't seen my older brother and um, my parents physically in a really long time um, 
because they're in New Mexico and I'm in California. I finally moved to be in the same country with them and we can't, we can't see each other. Um, if I went to New Mexico right now, I'd be quarantining because I'm in California and that's just how it is for us Californians these days. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, just to put that out there, have the conversations with your family and your friends that you want to have. We, we don't want to have any regrets from this time. We don't know how much time we have left. We don't know how much our loved ones have left. But we know that we can choose to control how we make a difference in this time. So just, I would encourage you to have these conversations. And just like I said before, research some opportunities in your own family and neighborhood and city and state and nation about ways that you are passionate about making a difference. Ways that you really could change the lives of others for the better. And uh, not just living for ourselves. It's um, oddly enough when we're down and we're struggling and we can't find hope, we can find hope when we reach out to someone else and, and offer just a helping hand. There's something that it does in us and in them because we were made for connection and relationship. That's, it's part of what separates humans from, um, all other living, living things. And, um, and we just, we do that in such different ways. It was one of the really awesome things I learned as an undergrad studying sociology, just the way we interact in society with each other. We just, we need each other. We need each other to have success. We need each other to have hope. And, um, and part of that just starts with us, us being the first one to just reach out and to make that, that first step. So I encourage you guys this week, based on things you've heard, some of these resources that Chris has pointed us to, maybe even just listening to his music will inspire you. And um, so I just encourage you to, to take a next step this week. What's one thing that you could do differently coming up this next week to just make a difference in someone's life? And just start small, and then you'll see how it can grow and, and just be contagious with other people. Contagious hope, contagious joy um, all around. I look forward to hearing your stories. I love to hear them. And um, if you would be open to sharing them, sharing photos and, and um, hashtagging uh, World of Difference, um, I would, I'll just check that out and all of us will check that out and just see how you're making a difference wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening. Tune in next week because I am going to interview my mom. And I know that she has lots of fans around the world because even after she left living in Thailand, I would run into some of her friends that um, she knew in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where she lived um, for a few years when I was living in Singapore still. And I would run into people at Grace International School that would say, hey, make, tell your mom to come back here. We love her. We miss her. She made such a difference in the lives of the students and the families. So, um, and I know for sure she's making a difference where she is in New Mexico because I've seen it myself and uh, watched her on TV and and news channels where she, before she retired, when she was doing the work she was doing. So you are not going to want to miss Frida Adams next week. Um, please, uh, stop back by this podcast and tune into that, whether you're driving to the grocery store in your car or just listening at your house, or I don't know, maybe you're one of those people right now that has the luxury of being by a beach or by the pool or in the mountains on vacation somewhere on holiday. Um, wherever you are, tune in to hear Frida Adams talk about her amazing life and the ways that she's pouring her life out for others. You will not want to miss it. Bye guys.